Um, we're going to continue our study today in Luke. Um, we have been going through the Bible in five years' time. We are getting toward the end of year three, um, and it has been amazing. For those of you maybe joining us for the first time or joining us online, um, what we do as a church is that we uh, study the Word of God together as a body of believers. We read six days a week the Word of God, and then the message that myself or Pastor Mark or whoever is sharing with us will come from the pulpit up here, uh, comes from that section of scripture that we study together. It dives us in a little bit deeper, helps us understand our faith a little bit better, and uh, it's been just a huge blessing as we've been going through that. And so this past week, we were in Luke chapters 9 through 12. Oh my goodness. I, I mean, I, I'm just going to confess to you, I sat down, to, well, because I'm doing the sermon, I sat down and read all of this all in one day and just read through it. And, and one of the things that stood out to me in this section of scripture is that every chapter kind of on its own, we're in the middle of Luke's gospel, every chapter on its own gave basically the gospel message all the way through. You just, you read chapter nine, you read chapter 10, you read chapter 11, you read chapter 12, and, and it's the gospel message. And it's not the gospel message that you just hear. It's not the John three sixteen type of thing. Don't get me wrong. John three sixteen is the word of God. It definitely is the gospel, but, but left by itself, it isn't the full gospel, right? If we leave it by itself, we, we don't get the full gospel because we have to read the gospel in order to get the full gospel. Would you guys agree with that? Okay. And so here we are in the middle, and, and in Luke 9, 10, 11, and 12, what we see over and over again, and I just challenge you to read it in this light. Read each of those chapters or review each of those chapters again, maybe when you get home today, and just take a look at it and look for these elements that, I, that I'll be looking at today. We're going to specifically look at Luke chapter 9 today. And we're not going to go with it in order because why would I do that? I want to be, you know unpredictable. But rather, uh, what I'm trying to point out within the element of Luke chapter 9 is what we see is the gospel. And we see the gospel over and over and over again. You're going to see it in Luke 10. You'll see it in Luke 11. You'll see it in Luke 12. And today's sermon is called, What Are You Gaining? What Are You Gaining? I think that's the message of this chapter that is this laid out um, for the people who are there. And as we look at this, we're going to find some interesting things concerning our relationship with Jesus, what it means to be a believer in Christ and have a testimony for Jesus, and, and how that should affect our lives in the sense of the commitment that we give to Christ, okay? And so I'm going to be starting actually with the believer because that's exactly where Jesus starts with. If you'll start with me, we're going to look at, the first thing I want you to notice is we're going to look at the testimony of Jesus. And the testimony of Jesus in this passage of Scripture comes in two different places. And the first one is actually found, if we look in Luke chapter 9, at the very beginning of the chapter, it starts this way. When Jesus had called the twelve together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. And he told them, take nothing for the journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra tunic. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that town. If people do not welcome you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave their town as a testimony against them. So they set out and went from village to village, preaching the gospel and healing people everywhere. So the first thing I want you guys to understand is that Jesus, in order to announce the kingdom of God, used his disciples first. He used his disciples first, not last, not second, not as a last resort. You know, now that I've come through this town, nope. I'm giving you authority to go to these towns and to proclaim the kingdom of God. You're to heal the sick with the authority that I've given you. You're to cast out demons with the authority that I have given you. And any that does not receive them, shake, your, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. They're going out to preach the kingdom of God. I think sometimes... The problem for us is, as believers in Christ, 
is that we think the testimony of Jesus originates with somebody else other than us. I think we hope that God will provide witnesses in other ways so that we don't have to get our hands dirty. So that we'll have that ready-made testimony like, oh, that miracle happened. Let me tell you, since God has already shown himself to you, let me tell you where that miracle came from. And when I look at Luke chapter 9, that's not how Jesus operated. Jesus operated telling you, you're my followers, therefore you are my witnesses to the world. As a matter of fact, if we go to the Great Commission, it's the exact same thing. What does Jesus say? All authority in heaven and in earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to, command, to obey everything I've commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the very end of the age. What does he do? He imparts authority just like he did to the disciples because we're the disciples. And he commands us to go, to make disciples, saying that he's going to be with us as we are doing this, proclaiming the kingdom of God. Believer, I want to tell you something. First and foremost, God has you in your job. God has you in your family. God has you among your friends. God has you wherever he has, has you at to be a witness for the kingdom of God. If you want Jesus to be made great in this nation, to be made great in this world, quit waiting for God to be the first testimony. That's why he put you there. When Jesus called these 12 disciples, he said, you're going to go out before me. I'm going to show up after. God has you there before. So that when he shows up, you've already been proclaiming his name. He's given all authority to us because it's his authority. It's not our authority. I ain't got any authority. But sometimes I forget that, don't I? I'm just going to be honest. How many of you are the same way? You wait for the quote-unquote perfect opportunity. Just wait, I'm just waiting for God to give me the perfect opportunity. I don't see that in the scripture right there. He said, go to these towns and do this. He didn't say, wait for the perfect opportunity. He didn't say, he even said, they might not even accept you and shake your, you know, the dust off your feet. You go there anyway. You and I are supposed to be the first testimony for Jesus that the world hears. Period. Has to come from somebody's lips and we're called his disciples, so it might as well come from ours. Secondly, we look in this passage. It's not as if it's not um, through just us. Obviously, we're, we're wanting to walk in step with Christ so that Christ will reveal himself to them. And so what we see is that we also see Christ coming in through his teaching, through his miracles, through the signs and wonders. So we look in Luke chapter 9 as we continue in that passage and go down to verse 10. And it says, and when the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done. And he took them with them and they withdrew to, by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. But the crowds learned about it and followed him. And he welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed healing. Late in the afternoon, the twelve came to him and said, send the crowd away so that they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging because we are in a remote place here. And he replied, you give them something to eat. And they answered, we only have five loaves of bread and two fish. Unless we go and buy food for all this crowd, about 5,000 men were there. But he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. The disciples did so, and everybody sat down. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke them. And then he gave thanks to the disciples to set before the people. And all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up the twelve baskets full of broken pieces that were left over. Interesting thing about this, the feeding of the 5,000 is one of only two miracles, the other, of course, being the resurrection of Jesus, that's recorded in all four of the Gospels. It's found in Matthew, it's found in Mark, which are the recollections of Peter. It's found in Luke, who has studied diligently these things, and it's found in John. Made such an impact on them of what Jesus did during that time that nobody left it out. Because Jesus was giving witness to himself. 
through these signs and miracles and wonders. We looked later on in the chapter in verses, verse 37. It says, after the transfiguration, it says, the next day when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. And a man in the crowd called out, teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he's my only child. A spirit seizes him and he suddenly screams and it throws him into convulsions so that he foams at the mouth. It scarcely ever leaves him and is destroying him. I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they could not. Oh, believing in perverse generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. And even while the boy was coming, the demon threw him to the ground in a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the evil spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. And while everyone was marveling at all that Jesus did, he said to his disciples, listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. The son of man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. But they did not understand what this meant. It was hidden from them. So they did not grasp it. And they were afraid to ask him about it. And so what do we see here? We see also that Jesus doing these miracles. Who gets the glory for it? God does, right? They all glorified God when they saw what had happened. Because it gives the authority to Jesus. The disciples couldn't do this, but Jesus could. Right? Disciples have no power in and of themselves. But Jesus could. And therefore the praise and glory went to God. So guess what? The testimony of Jesus came first from the disciples. And then when the disciples weren't enough, it came from Jesus. And you and I are going to find those moments in time where we're not going to be enough. And that's okay. Because Jesus is. And Jesus is going to do those miracles And it's going to be amazing to see those things. As a matter of fact, on top of that, we see the witness and the testimony of God the Father himself in this same passage in a miraculous, amazing way. So if we go back to Luke chapter 9, go back a few few scriptures to verse 28 when it talks about the transfiguration. It says, after about eight days after Jesus said this, talking about his confession of faith, which we'll get to a little bit later. He took Peter, John, and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. And two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. And they spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. And as the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He didn't know what he was saying. And while he was speaking, a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son whom I've chosen. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, they had found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and told no one at the time what they had seen. You know, the funny thing is, although they don't say anything at the time what they'd seen, Peter unapologetically talks about it later in his epistle, second epistle of Peter. And in chapter 1, this is what it says. Such an indelible mark this experience made. It says, we did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came from him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. See, the testimony of Jesus is not just for the world, it's also for the believer. Because Peter, James, and John, when they went up to the mountain, they were already following Jesus. They had already given the confession that Jesus was the Christ. They already believed that's who he was. And yet Jesus gives this amazing testimony. And God the Father gives this amazing testimony. They're sleepy, they wake up, and oh, there's Jesus all glowing, right? And not just all glowing, you're with Moses and Elijah. And all of us would say, oh Peter, you're so dumb. 
We'd done, we would have done the same thing. He's just trying to honor Jesus, right? I want to honor Jesus, so I want to make a shelter. You're all, you're all amazing. So we got Moses, we got Elijah, we got Jesus. I'm going to put you all on the same level. And God the Father kind of steps in and says, no, this is my son. They're not on the same level. Such an indelible mark that it made that Peter later on proclaims it in his letter. And he says, we didn't make up stories. This really happened. Let me tell you something. As a believer in Jesus Christ, sometimes God does the amazing in your life to be a testimony for you. For you. To strengthen and bolster your faith during those times when your faith is going to be tested, when it's dry, when it wanes a little bit. And he wants you to remember these things really happened. I mean, if I were to ask you for real, how many of you, because I can honestly say this for myself, how many of you can say that I have witnessed the miraculous, I have no other explanation except Jesus has answered my prayer or answered this situation and it had nothing to do with me, had nothing to do with my power, everything to do with him, that he receives all the glory for it. I go back and remember it in my mind and I have no doubt exactly what happened is because of Jesus. Anybody have that testimony? Because I surely do. God has given you that testimony in the same way that he gave Peter this testimony that would it be an indelible mark that not only is God real, Jesus is real, and these things happen to remind us in those dry times, because all of us get them, every single one of us get them, did that really happen? To go back and revisit and saying, you know what, I can't explain anything about this except because of Jesus, except because of Jesus. Now, one of the things that I've stored away in my mind is driving home, and I I believe I've shared it up here before, and if I haven't, then it'll be great that you guys get to hear it. I'm driving home in our van. We called it the banister canister. It was was coined that way. Um, But we were driving home, and, and it was an old van when we got it, and it was a much older van as we were driving home, and we didn't trust the van outside of, uh, outside of Albuquerque just because it had like a bazillion miles on it, and it was old. And so um, as we were driving home, it had been overheating on the way home. Now, I live on the west side of Rio Rancho, so I mean extreme wet, like Grant's side of Rio Rancho. Um, and so the, the idea of us trying to go home it's hard when your car is trying not to work for you. And so as we're traveling home, I'm going up the hill and our car is overheating, like overheating bad. The, the whole dial is all the way up to the hot. And, and you just, you smell the antifreeze. You know it's bad, okay? How many, if you've been there, you understand what I'm talking about, right? Okay, so I know it's overheating. I'm like, I just want to be able to get home. I just want to be able to get home. I just want to be able to get home. And I, and I verbalize this prayer out loud. Everybody in my family heard it. As I'm driving home, dear Lord Jesus, dear God, just get me home safe. Can you get me home safe? It was just a simple prayer like that. I kid you not, my kids are witnesses, my family's a whole witness to it. It went from hot to normal, stayed that way till I got home. I kid you not. Am I lying? Am I lying? You guys were there. So if I'm lying, I'm dying. So Lord, no. No, I'm just kidding. But I'm not lying. It's serious. And why is that important? Because my kids got to see this miracle as well as I got to see this miracle. I mean, it went from hot to cold, and I still had to get it fixed. It still wasn't working right. Don't get me wrong. Like, God God destroyed what was wrong with my car. No, it didn't work that way. It's still an old car. It still overheated the next day when I was trying to take it to the the place. But I got home safely. And I give God praise for it because I've never seen it go from hot to, I mean, it went immediately hot to middle and it was fine until I got home. Still smelled bad because there was still antifreeze that you could smell in there. But you know what? I know for a fact that I didn't pray to anybody else but God. I prayed out loud. Everybody got to hear that. And my kids and myself got to see that. We get to hide that away. And be able to say, you know what? God's real. God's real. God really did that. I really believe that with all my heart. And I share it with you today as an encouragement of faith. Because God has miracles that happen in your life for you to testify to the goodness of God. That's the whole point. Why were miracles happening? So that God would receive glory. So people would understand who Jesus is. 
to encourage the heart of the believer, because I guarantee you at every miracle that the disciples witnessed by Jesus was a further encouragement to them that, dude, this is really the Messiah, the Son of God. And we don't think he still does that for us today? That's part of the reason why we have the testimony time here, to encourage one another's heart. And man, I want to hear the miraculous. And you know what? We're kind of scared. I think Peter was a little scared when all that happened. Yeah, the father shows up. I didn't tell anybody. It was a little freaky. That might be going a little bit too far. People might not believe what I said. Does it for us so that we will be a witness for Christ and so that he in turn can encourage us through these miraculous things that happen in our lives. My prayer is all of you experience that sometime in your life, sincerely, because I believe that God will do that. Or be on the lookout for it. And don't be so quick to deny it. Because God wants to use it as an encouragement to your life and a witness to others. And so what happens when we look at this? The testimony of Jesus comes through the disciples and it comes through Jesus himself, comes through the Father. And so what's the reaction of the people around them? I mean, right here in chapter 9, we see diverse reaction of the people to all of these things that are happening. So, go to the top of the chapter again. What do the crowds think about Jesus as he was proclaiming the kingdom of God, as he was trying to point people to himself as Messiah, as Christ? And this is what it says in Luke chapter chapter 9, in verses 7 through 9. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard all about, about all that was going on, and he was perplexed because some were saying that John had been raised from the dead, others that Elijah had appeared, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago had come back to life. But Herod said, I beheaded John. Who then is this I hear such things about? And he tried to see him. And if we look, just scroll down just a little bit further uh, to uh, verses 18 and 19. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets of long ago that's come back to life. You'll notice that these two equate with one another, that this is what the crowds were saying. It's either John the Baptist come back to life or Elijah or one of the other prophets that have come back to life. They had a wrong view of who Jesus was. They were very mistaken. They thought he was, he was a great man, that he was a prophet. Maybe, maybe a lot like Peter up on the mountain when he saw the transfigured Jesus. Let's make him shelter for each one of you. No, this is my son. Okay, nope, no shelter for Jesus, gotcha. They had a wrong view of who Jesus was. The crowds didn't know. Maybe they thought he was a good man, a prophet who had come to see them and point them in the direction of God, and to a certain extent that was right, but it was totally incomplete. Is that any different than today? Has anything changed in 2,000 years? You ask the general person on the street who Jesus is. You're uh, probably going to get a lot of different answers and a lot of them not exactly right. Most people believe that Jesus sinned while he was on this earth. Some people don't believe that he rose from the dead. Some people don't think that he was the son of God and never claimed to be the son of God. There's a lot of misperception concerning Jesus that has been preached for 2,000 years. Isn't there anything different? Crowds didn't necessarily get it right, did they? We live in a society where the crowds still don't get it right, do they? That's why our testimony is sorely needed to a world that doesn't know Jesus. And a lot of people are only going to see him as a good man or a great teacher. And be utterly confused on exactly what it is that he claimed and what he did for you and me. Second thing we see, if we go down toward the bottom of the chapter, in Luke chapter 9. Verses 51 through 56 says, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. 
But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. And when the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them, and they went to another village. So just like at the beginning of the chapters, they're sent ahead to proclaim the kingdom of God. And when they find out that they're going to Jerusalem, they're passing through. Guess what? The Samaritans don't want anything to do with them. And James and John, let me just be honest with you. Do what me and you do sometimes when people reject the message of Christ. Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven? Burn all these people up? Come on, let's just be honest. Some of you guys are, have had that rejection and taken it personally, right? The rejection of Jesus becomes very personal. We want them to know Jesus. We've talked to them about Jesus. They blow us off. They call us a zealot. They, they, they call us all types of names. Talk, talk about us being intolerant. Like, oh, God's wrath come down on you. I mean, in that voice, right? That's what we want, right? At, at that moment, because we, we feel the slight, Because the rejection of Jesus is not what we want when we're sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. It's not what James and John wanted. It's not what you and I want when people summarily dismiss us, call us names, treat us wrongly. As a pastor, man, it's it's hard sometimes. You share Christ and they don't want anything to do with Jesus. And you're just like, well, I don't want nothing to do with you either. Hmm. Jesus had to rebuke him. It's not what he came for. Judgment's going to come soon enough when Jesus comes back. Right now, it's not about that. It's about proclaiming the kingdom of God so that men can be saved. That's what they're called to do. That's what Jesus wanted them to do. But there's going to be rejection. There's going to be ridicule. There's going to be people who don't want to hear that message. Has that changed in 2,000 years? Not a bit. It could be family members, friends, co-workers, person you're trying to minister to down at 3rd Street. could be anything, right? Nothing's changed. Still the same. But we also see a glimmer of hope. If we go back just a few verses to verse 49. Master, John said, we saw a man driving out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not one of us. Don't stop him, Jesus said, for whoever is not against you is for you. You see, there's an interesting thing that happened here. Not only do we see that people have the wrong impression of who Jesus is, we also see that some people reject Jesus outright and we can take that personally, but we also see that some accept him. Not only accept him, but they begin to walk in the same power that Jesus gave his disciples. Remember at the beginning of the chapter, go to these towns, cast out demons, proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, heal the sick. That's what they were called to do. And so John sees somebody doing that who doesn't happen to be part of their group. And he says, should we forbid him from doing that? Because he's trying to cast out demons in your name too. Where does the power come from for casting out demons? Through Christ, right? It wasn't any different. Beginning of the chapter is very clear. Jesus gave them power to do that. So if this man's doing it, who's giving him the power to do it? Jesus. Why? Because he's his Lord too. But the irony is this. We look at it and, and we almost see like, you know, you've got John saying, but he's not one of us, but he really is, right? Because the acceptance in Jesus Christ has nothing to do with where you accepted Christ at, right? You didn't have to come walk down an aisle at a church to be able to do it. I was in my truck, okay? When I accepted Jesus Christ, I was in my truck driving home. I can tell you where I was. I was at a stop sign as I was driving home, and I accepted Christ. And I know I accepted Christ at that moment in time. And I was in the family of God as of that moment. Did I walk down the aisle next week? Yes, I did. But had I died between then, I would have been in the family of God. You know why? Because this man would have been in the family of God, according to Jesus. Because power comes from Christ. 
And his disciples were the ones who were given power to cast out demons and to heal the sick. And here's this man doing that in Jesus' name. So somewhere along the way, maybe while preaching to the 5,000, maybe in some other place, he has accepted the message of Christ and he has become a full disciple of Jesus Christ, even though he's not part of the 12. But he's not part of our group. doesn't matter. It's not like Jesus was preaching to the masses so that he could have lots of little 12 groups here so they could be part of a group in order to accept Jesus. And that's the beauty of it, is that the acceptance of Christ for us being able to share the message of Christ, it doesn't have to be in a certain place. That's why it's so important that you and I use our testimony where we are, because you might be praying with a coworker one day into the kingdom of God. It doesn't have to be here on a Sunday morning just because I'm preaching from Luke 9. And it's important we remember that. Because those are the reactions we get today, isn't it? Confusion on who Jesus is, either rejection or acceptance. That's it. Those are the only three reactions you can get. Nothing's changed. But the other thing I love about this passage of Scripture right here is it doesn't soft-pedal the gospel. And you heard me quote John 3.16. And the reason I quote John 3.16 is because we usually don't read John 3.17 or 3.18 afterwards. Context is everything, guys. And when we leave out the context, you're leaving out part of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't see Jesus doing that in this passage here in Luke chapter 9. So I'm going to go to where we're used to hearing this idea of what it means to be saved. But you'll notice that Jesus doesn't soft pedal it. So turn with me, Luke chapter 9, verses 18 to 27. Once when Jesus was praying, this is after the feeding of the 5,000. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked, who do crowds say that I am? And they had replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and so others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you, he asked, who do you say that I am? Peter answered, the Christ of God. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, the son of man will suffer many things and must be rejected by the elders and chief priests and teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. And then he said to them all, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet, and yet lose or forfeit his very self? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. Do you see what he did there? He proclaimed who he was. I'm the the Christ of God. And then he charged them with this. If you're going to follow me, you got to deny yourself, pick up your cross daily, and follow me. What benefit does it give a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his very self or his very soul? He compares what we can get into this world with himself, and he says he's better. That's what he says. All your dreams, all your aspirations, whatever they are in this world, pale in comparison to what Jesus is offering. And the testimony of this passage of Scripture should tell you he has life in his hands. Multiplies multiplies the bread, raises the dead, heals the sick, cures the demon-possessed. Man, this is real life. What's the world got to offer in place of that? Seriously. And that's why he says, look, but if you're going to follow me, it's going to cost all of what you are for all of me instead. Otherwise, you're just gaining the world. That's all you got. That's the best you got. Get a billion dollars. Make the biggest business. That's all you got because that's all that's going to be in the end. It all turns to dust. It all burns away. And the only thing that's left is Jesus, and you chose that. Since that's why you have to die yourself every day to follow me. Every day. Not some half-hearted commitment. 
Not some Jesus on the weekends. Jesus is my hobby is not going to get you to heaven. It's just not. And he proclaims it very clearly, not just in this place, but in other places as well. The beauty of this confession, though, is it's available to everybody. Go toward the end of the chapter. We've already seen a a portion of it. But verse 46 says, An argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand beside him. And then he said to him, Whoever welcomes this child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For he who is least among you, he is the greatest. Master said, John, we we saw a man driving out demons in your name. We tried to stop him because he's not one of us. Don't stop him, Jesus said, forever is not against you, it's for you. See, the beauty of it is, is that anybody who takes that confession of faith that says Jesus above everything else, with that childlike faith. Have you ever been around children who really believe stuff? I mean, really believe stuff. Some of you guys know what I'm talking about, right? The child, like, you do the trust fall and they're already jumping. You know, like, catch me! You know, ah! That's what Jesus wants for me and you, right? I've heard stories that have gone badly for parents who are like, yeah, we're doing the trust fall. And they jump before I turned around, you know? It was like, we're going to do the trust fall. Because they're like, you're going to catch me, Dad. Right now, you're going to catch me. 20 stitches later, might be a little different story. But I'm just saying. There's that childlike faith that you're going to catch me. And Jesus said that anybody who comes to me with that childlike faith and really believes me has accepted me. You don't need anything else. That's a beautiful thing, isn't it? But it's not an easy thing. And so he ends the chapter with this, reminding us that though this is a free gift, it costs you and I everything. Absolutely everything. Verse 57. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And he said to another man, follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus replied, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. This is not Jesus soft-pedaling the gospel, is it? Three different people, two approach him, said, I'm going to follow you. And one he actually approaches and said, follow me. Gives the exact same call that he gives his other disciples. And the first one, he says, you know, I'll follow you wherever you go. And he's saying, okay, but understand this. I don't have a home. I got no place to lay my head. Think about that for just a moment. That if we contextualize that in today's setting, Jesus would be around the people at Third Street Ministry. Just to give you an idea, right? It's not easy. Proclaim the kingdom of God and not have a place to set down your head. Understand what you're signing up for. Second person comes up to him and he tells him, he walks to him and he says, follow me. Same call he gives Peter. Same call he gives John. Same call he gives Andrew. Same call that he gives the disciples that he handpicked. Follow me. He says, let me go and bury my father first. Of course, Jesus' reaction might seem strange to you and me. Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. I want you guys to understand something. This isn't Jesus walking up to a funeral procession. He's not walking up to a funeral procession and this guy's got, can I just, can you give me an hour to bury my dad? Because he's in the coffin right here and we're going to put him in the shallow grave or we're going to put him in a sepulcher and then I'm all about you, Jesus. That's not what's happening here. This is a man whose father who doesn't believe that Jesus is the Christ. And he doesn't want to stir up contention in his own house. And he says, you know what? I'll just wait till my dad dies and then I'll be all about Jesus. 
That's really what it's all about. Jesus' proclamation. Let the bed, dead bury the dead. You proclaim the kingdom of God. How many of you are waiting for that moment where it'll be easier for you to be a Christian because it will never happen? It'll be easier for me to be a Christian if I can just wait. If I'm out of my parents' house, if, if, I'm, if I'm no longer having to have these conflicts with my coworkers, if I'm no longer having to have this other, once this, once this really rebellious person is no longer a part of my life, man, I'm going to be all about Jesus. You know what? God probably keep that one living longer than you. And then what happens? You weren't about Jesus. That's why he says, let the dead bury their own dead. You're to proclaim the kingdom of God. Where you are right now, unapologetically for Jesus. Don't wait for the opportune moment because then it will never come. It just won't. You've been given a mission from God to proclaim Christ to the world around you. Not wait for the right time to do it because the right time is now. Remember, he said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, talking about Jesus. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. All authority has been given to him, and he is with us, so he's going to help us have the power to be able to complete this mission of making disciples. What we have to be is obedient and to stop making excuses and stop looking for the right opportunities. And finally, Jesus said to the last one, let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Seems like a reasonable request, right? Let me just go say bye. Turn around, go to, bye mom and dad, I'm out, I'm with Jesus, I'm going, bye. It's not not that simple, right? Because they live in a culture saying goodbye is never an easy thing to do. They're going back to their old culture, going back to their family who will try and convince them that that's not the right thing to do. If you've ever tried to live for Jesus and you go back around those old people again, they think you're crazy. They think that you're, you don't, you, you're just like, man, you, it's okay that you like Jesus. Just don't be that all, all sold out for him. It's okay if you're just a little bit on the lukewarm side of things. This is what Jesus is talking about. It's like if you're putting your hand to the plow, you're seeing what Jesus is doing. Don't go back to this lukewarm state. Because you're going to be unfit for the kingdom of God if you're doing that. Because Jesus ain't your hobby. I'm not joking. It's not a soft peddling of the gospel. It's a bold proclamation of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, that he's your everything, everything. You're all in all. Your life revolves around him. You want to testify and tell everybody. You want to share the things that God has done so that people can see how great God is. And anything less than that is not discipleship. Anything less than that is not discipleship. It's not you making disciples of all nations. Making disciples is hard work. It's a free gift, but it costs you everything. Jesus has done it all for you so that you can walk in him to do the good works he's created you to do. To walk in his power to be able to do that. You're going to be looking at the rest of Luke, the rest of Acts, and the message of this all the way through is this. You're going to see the disciples living out exactly what this message talks about all throughout it. And if the first witness is them, everywhere they go, especially when we get to Acts, it, it's amazing to me because Acts begins by saying, I wrote to you, Theophilus, all the things that Jesus began to do. It's an interesting statement, isn't it? Because this is after the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. Or chapter 1 goes to the ascension of Jesus. And it's talking about he's just beginning. You know why? Because he's using you to spread the message of Christ to the world around. And that's what we see in Acts. Is that's why they understood the Great Commission. We cannot understand it any differently. And it cost them everything. They went all around the world proclaiming all the things that Jesus had done. And it changed the world upside down. Not a lukewarm Christianity that meets on Sunday mornings and that was a great two-hour service. 
The Jesus I serve wants me to experience the rejection. Wants me to experience the the people who have a wrong idea of who he is and wants me to experience those who are going to accept him. But it only happens when I take his calling seriously and I do what the disciples did, which was obey Jesus and go into these towns and proclaim the kingdom of God. That's what it's going to take to change the world. And the beautiful thing is, he's with us. He's with us. He's empowered us to do it. And read chapter 9, read chapter 10, read chapter 11, read chapter 12. You're going to see that same thing over and over and over again. Not a soft peddling of the gospel, but what it really costs to be a believer and a follower of Jesus. And he gives that comparison. What you're going to gain? You're going to gain the whole world? Because that's all you're going to get, or you're going to get me. And Peter said unequivocally, I take you. I screw up for you. I'll mess up all the time for you. If I could just have you. I've been walking with Jesus for nearly 30 years, and I'm telling you something. I've experienced all of these things. I change none of where I'm at right now because Jesus is better. Jesus is better. My wife and I got word last night. A good friend of mine who went to college with us. As a matter of fact, I I met her literally the first day I was at college. She was coming in from Florida to come to college up at Toccoa Falls. She saw my my bumper sticker for the Christian radio station at the time. Said, cool station. We ended up having classes together. Nicknamed me little brothers. Like, "You're, you're like the little brother I never had. She would call for the last 25 years I've known her. She called a few times a year. She's met, she knows all of our family. I mean, I was married to Shannon when I, I was around her at the time, and, and she's an amazing, amazing lady. We call and talk to one another and talk about Christ and talk about the state of the church. Gonna solve all the problems in the church. She's a huge King James Version person, so she would talk about her King James Version only. We'd get in fun debates about that. Yeah, who does that? I do, okay? I do, and she does, and we would have fun with it. She loved Jesus with all of her heart. She went to be with the Lord last night. Another friend of mine let me know. She's been battling cancer. Jesus is always on our lips. I can tell you from walking and being her friend for a quarter century that if you asked her what was better, this world or Jesus, it was Jesus, hands down. And she'd go through everything that she went through all over again because she knew what she was was getting was better. That's the Jesus we should be proclaiming. Would you stand with me? You may be visiting, you may be looking online. This may be the first time that you've heard the gospel message in its fullness. I want to tell you, Jesus is better. Better than anything this world has to offer, no matter how good you think you have it. Everything pales in comparison to Jesus. If you don't know Christ, I invite you, come and talk to the elders afterwards. Come and talk to me afterwards. I would love to talk to you about this Jesus. Fellow Christian, It's your job to proclaim the kingdom of God. God has placed you as a witness in your work, in your family, among your friends, even among those chance encounters that you might have at the grocery store or the post office or Walmart to proclaim the kingdom of God to the world around you. 
And if you will do that, Jesus will be his own testimony among them. You don't have to worry about that. Some of them will be confused on who he is. Some of them will reject you. But you know what? By the grace of God, some will accept and understand exactly what it is that you're offering and understand how valuable Jesus is. And it's so much better than anything this world has to offer. Stop waiting for the right opportunity. Start sharing Christ with everybody around you. And then watch Jesus do his work. You'll see miracles and you'll be able to hold on to them and say, you know what? My God is faithful. And he shows himself faithful over and over and over again. Some of you need boldness to do that. We're going to be up here to pray with so that you can pray for that. I need it too. Don't leave today without recognizing your role in the kingdom of God and how God wants you to be a part of that kingdom. Dear Jesus, I want to thank you for the day. I want to thank you for our time. I want to thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to thank you for the hope that's in him and nothing else. That if any here do not know that hope, do not have that hope, that today, today, they could turn around, deny themselves, understand what it is that you're offering them. You're offering them life, life to the full here and life eternal. No matter what happens here. And it's worth any trade-off. God, help us, O oh Lord, as a people of God, to live for you fearlessly in a world that is caught up in fear right now. We have the hope of Christ that we can share. Help us to do so. Help us to be about the kingdom of God above everything else because it pales in comparison to what you offer us at our work, among our family, among our friends, our co-workers, our acquaintances that you put our way, Lord. Help us to be bold and proclaim the kingdom of God. To make disciples as you called us to do. And empower us as you promised, O oh Lord. Because you promised that you're with us always. All authority on heaven and earth is yours. We hold to that today. We ask anew, Lord for the strength that it takes to proclaim the kingdom of God to everyone around us and to offer the hope that comes to Jesus wherever we're at. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.